Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. If you know of a product that could help athletes reduce concussions by over 99%, wouldn't you want it? If NFL athletes like defensive back Daniel Sorensen of the Kansas City Chiefs and New Orleans Saints used it, wouldn't you want it? As athletes get bigger, stronger, and faster, we're seeing an increase in the amount of concussions in contact sports. According to the National Football League, concussions increased by 18% in the 2022 regular season. We're also seeing an increase in concussions in other sports. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there are between 1.6 and 3.8 million sports-related brain injuries every year. But there's new technology out there where data has shown to reduce concussions by 99.98%. We at the Football Learning Academy are driven to help athletes improve safety and reduce injuries. We've seen the effects on older players and want to do what we can to make contact sports safer for those who participate. That technology that we're talking about is the Power Plus mouth guard. Unlike other mouth guards, this is worn on the lower part of your jaw. How it works is that it shifts the position of your jaw to an optimally physiologically aligned position to reduce the G-force impact on your brain. If that's not enough, the Power Plus mouth guard has shown to increase an athlete's performance by increasing strength, stamina, and oxygen intake, all while allowing you to speak normally while wearing the device. The Power Plus mouth guard works for every sport and is very easy to customize to each individual in order to position your jaw at its optimal physiological location for your unique bite. Over-the-counter mouth guards are one size fits all. The Power Plus mouth guard is revolutionary and the data has shown results. Of the over 6,500 athletes that use the Power Plus mouth guard, the amount of diagnosed concussions was 0.2%. If you're an athlete or the parent of an athlete, you'll want to learn more about the Power Plus Mouth Guard. Go to powerplusmouthguard.com to learn more and tell them that the Football Learning Academy sent you. Hey, this is J.J. Burden, former NFL wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. To learn more about the Football Learning Academy, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. If you like what you hear with this or any of our episodes, 
give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast platform. It helps us grow our podcast so that we can continue to bring you quality content. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for our show, email us at admin at football-learning-academy.com to talk about the various options available to you. We would love to talk to you about adding you to our team. Now on to our episode. Today's special guest is Harold Jackson, whom I interviewed back in 2013. Jackson was a wide receiver for the Rams, Eagles, Patriots, Vikings, and Seahawks from 1968 through 1987. After playing, he went into coaching and had various stops in the pros and in college. The Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about the history of scouting and the Combine. How did they get the name Combine and why is it in Indianapolis? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Now let's get to our archival interview with Harold Jackson. The Professional Football Researchers Association uh, inducted you into our Hall of Very Good back in 2011. Okay. And I've been trying to go back you know, through all the uh, inductees and make sure I personally contact everyone to let them know about their induction and let them know a little bit more about the Professional Football Researchers Association. Okay. When you hear that um, a group of historians um, recognizes your career like that, I mean, what, what comes to mind for you? Well, you know, it, it kind of makes you feel good because you feel like you did something deserving that people really recognize. And, you know, like I said, when I told everybody, you know, people always ask me about it. You know, like I said, when I played the game, you know, I pretty much played it for my family and played it for my home state and, you know, and my friends, you know, because I enjoy doing something that they enjoy, uh, you know, participating in in my life, you know, so... Like I said, I had a lot of supporters behind me, and, uh, you know, and then I appreciate that. And then, you know, like I said, God always gives you a talent, and he gives you a talent to use it to your best ability, and that's what I thought I did, and that's what I was trying to do. Now, when you were at Jackson State, did you have any thoughts that you'd be playing professional football or go into coaching after that? You know what? I, I didn't have no idea that I would, you know, because I was, <laughs> you know, when I left high school, I didn't weigh about 149 pounds when I left high school. Mm. And I know football was a big man game, but although I played it in high school, because I played it two years in high school, and then I went on and got a scholarship in uh, at Jackson State. And once the, you know, I started playing, and then all of a sudden I started being, you know, started getting letters from the pros. I said, well, maybe this be a wise, uh, you know, thing to do here. Maybe, maybe I do have something to, you know, give back, you know. So that's, and then all of a sudden my junior year, I really started, you know, getting the, you know, the itch about it, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start getting questionnaires, you fill out questionnaires, send them back to the NFL, and then, uh, and, it, and, it, and it went from there. Now, after your first season with the Rams, you were traded to Philadelphia. I mean, how did you feel being traded after one year when the Rams really didn't play you enough to, to really give you a shot? Well, you know, uh, when I was with the Rams, you know, I think it was only two guys made George Allen team, you know, and George Allen, he didn't think rookies, uh, you know, was, you know, they always felt like rookie makes, you know, too many mental mistakes, and that's why George always believed in the veteran ball players, you know. Mm -hmm. The guy that he felt like he could really rely on. And uh, like I said, it was myself and Don uh, Havoc. He was the other uh, guy that they kept on the team. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember we got in the playoff, or we was, we was about to get in the playoff against the Chicago Bears. And so we was behind in that ball game, and George Allen put 
few minutes in the ball game, try to help. You know, I guess I, he, I had pretty good speed, and he feel like if Roman Gabe can throw a deep ball and try to, you know, try to get the ball to me, that, you know, I was going to run right by the defensive back. And that's what he did. He put me in there. We ran, you know, uh, that play twice. And every time we ran it, the defensive back, when the ball was thrown short, so I tried to come back for the ball, and the defensive back ran right over me. Mm. It knocked me down, and they didn't call a pass interference. They didn't call anything. And also, that group of officials, they were suspended that year mm. because they took a down from us. We only had about three downs. They didn't have four downs, so they suspended those guys that year. But after that season was over, then, uh, like I said, I was in the National Guard. I was in the National Guard. And... Uh, so I spent some time in the National Guard, uh, and so while I was there, I got a call from the Rams, from uh, the Rams, and that said that they had traded me to Philadelphia. And uh, I just thought, you know, I, I, I didn't know how to take it at the time, but you know, like I said, it, it worked out good for me because, like I said, I went to Philadelphia, and that's where I really got my start because I went there my first year with the Philadelphia Eagles made all pro, you know, and led the National Football League that year, had over 1,000 yards, and, you know, that year, and so I went to the, went to the Pro Bowl. Mm -hmm. That's what really got my career, got my career started. So you enjoyed your time with Philadelphia? I enjoyed my time with Philadelphia. I tell you what, when I left Philadelphia, <laughs> I was in the National Guard again, and uh, I was, we was doing our active duty, you know, doing our weekend, uh, well, matter of fact, we were doing our summer camp. We were down in AP Hill, Virginia at the time. And uh, they called me and told me that I had been traded back to Los Angeles Rams at that time. And then I, I just started crying at that time, you know, because I didn't want to leave Philadelphia because I thought Philadelphia was good to me. I really enjoyed Philadelphia. Philadelphia was what really gave me my start. And, and, uh, and, I, and I owed a lot to Philly. How did you feel about being back at the Rams? I know you said you weren't happy about leaving Philly, but once you got back to Los Angeles, how did you feel? Well, once I got back to the Rams, and, uh, you know, like I said, that's, you know, how those things would last for so long. And then once I got back in the mix of things, and they had a new coach, Chuck Knox, and then they brought in John Halo's new uh, quarterback and everything. So once I got back in there, I knew what they were looking for me to do. And then uh, after, you know, thing got started, you know, I had a pretty good year that year. And I ended up with about 13 touchdowns that year and went to the Pro Bowl. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you start feeling good about yourself again because, you know, when those things happen sometime, when you get traded, you feel like people don't care for you or whatever, you know. You feel kind of left out a little bit, you know. But after, you know, I got there and then went to the Pro Bowl and uh, led the National Football League again and touchdowns and stuff. So, it, you know, it kind of... Kind of got, uh, like everybody told me, like, before I left Philadelphia, I said, man, you've got to be crazy. I don't want to go to California, you know. But, uh, you know, I had spent one year in in California, so I spent more of my time at that time was in Philadelphia. Now, after uh, the 83 season, uh, you retired from playing football, and I know you started coaching in 85. What did you do between those two times? Well, when, uh, when I retired, uh, uh, matter of fact, when, when I retired, Coach Barry got the job in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, like I said, I retired, like I, my last season was 83, and I really retired in 84. And uh, so I really kind of took off that year in 84, didn't really do too much of nothing, because when Coach Barry got the job, he called and asked me about 
Miles. He got the job, well, I think, about midway season or something. I think Ron Miles was the head coach, and they let him go during the season. So when Coach Beery got the job, I called and congratulated him for, you know, for, you know, being the head coach at New England. And at the time, he said, well, give me your phone numbers where you are uh, going to be, and uh, I'd like to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And so I gave him my numbers and everything, so he called me after the season was over in, Phil- in uh, New England, and he asked me, you know, hey, you'd like to see about me coaching his wide receivers. And that was the last thing on my mind, mm-hmm. was coaching, you know, because after you spend 16 years in the National Football League, and then you see how these coaches out there working, and, hey, they spend 24 hours, 24-7 around the clock, seeing like they never went home. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, being a player, I said, well, this is something that I don't think I want to do. So when he told me about it, you know, coaching, so he said, well, you don't have to make up your mind right now, you know, so just think about it a couple of weeks and call me back and give me, you know, let me know what you want to do. So when he hung up, he then he called right back and said that, uh, while you're thinking about it, this is what we will be able to pay you, you know, at the time. So I said, okay, coach. I said, and I was in Hattiesburg in Mississippi at the time with my parents, so I, I was living in Los Angeles. So I said, well, when I get back to L.A., you know, I give you a call and uh, let you know what I, you know, how I feel about what you know what I want to do. So when he hung up, I bet you about 15 minutes later he called right back. Said, "Have you thought about it? <laughs> Have you thought about it? You know, and Coach Barry, you know, you got to know him, man. He's a he's a jokester, like you know. And so I said, "No, Coach, I hadn't thought about it yet." So when I got back to LA, when I got back to LA that that week, and that week. I had a contract there in the mail when I got there. Mm-hmm. And so, matter of fact, I called Chuck Knox and talked to Chuck Knox about it, and Chuck's a hero. He said, you know what the NFL means? He said, not for long. He said, people forget who you are real quick. And he said, what you need to do is go, just give it a year. If you don't like it, get out of it. And so I called Coach Barry back and told him that I, what I was going to do, and he said, well, okay. He said, well, I said, I said, and he said, well, on your way here, he said, I want you to go through uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I want you, no, he said, I want you to go to uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. I want you to see Stephen Starr. These are the receivers. I want you to go through and see Stephen Starr and Lake Charles, Louisiana. I went there and saw him. He said, on the way from there, I want you to go through Memphis, Tennessee, see Stanley Morgan. So I went to see Stanley Morgan. See, Stanley Morgan and I was roommates, and we played together when I was in, in New England. So I went through Memphis and saw Stanley. He said, I want you to go through Romeo, Romeo or North Carolina, see Cedra Jones. And he said, Urban Fry is here. When you get here, you can see Urban here in Boston. So that's what I did. I went to see all those guys before I got to New England. When I got to New England, I had three paychecks. And I said, man, this is really not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I got there, that's where it got started, you know, from, you know, the coaching. Because like I said, like I said, coaching was the last thing on my mind until, you know, hey, then I said, well, after we, 1985, we went to the Super Bowl. I said, well, it's not too bad. And I, I was coaching from that point on. Mm-hmm. Now, you were with the Patriots from 85 to 89, and during there you had the, uh, the strike, and they actually uh, had you suit up for a couple of games. Uh, how did the other players treat you uh, suiting up during the strike? Well, you know, like being a coach, I guess they say he on the coach side of the ball at the time, you know, although I, I you know, I, I suited up but never got on the field. I just, I think I was just trying to make out some bodies and all that kind of stuff, you know, because I never, never got on the field at all. You know, I just suited up and really went through a few drills and practices.
Texas, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. But I never, you know, never made the football, you know, on, went out there to catch a pass or run a route or do anything. So I just had, had a uniform on. But I guess I was like a player's coach. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you were a head coach at uh, Virginia Union College and Benedict College. Um, right. Did you enjoy being a head coach, and did you uh, have any desire to continue to be a head coach after you left Benedict? You know what? I enjoy I enjoyed being the head coach. You know because, like I said, it you know it, it felt like I was kind of putting something back into the game, putting something back into the young man. You know, mm-hmm. thing that was put into me. I just wanted to spread it back and try to, you know, give it back to them. You know, and so it kind of makes me feel good when I was a head coach, and then I was working with the receivers on both ends, and then it kind of makes me feel good when I go out there and that's what I used to do, how I used to do it. Then you teach it to your players, and they go out and do it almost the same way you've done it. Then it makes you feel good. It feel like you accomplished something, you know. So I, I really enjoyed being the head coach at uh, Benedict College. When I went to Virginia Union, I went there to, uh, matter of fact, to help uh, one of the coaches that coached me in college. I just went there for the, uh, for the, you know, that particular year because I wasn't coaching nowhere. I wasn't working anywhere at that time. So I went that year just, just for the football season. And while I was there at Virginia Union, the, a- the AD and the president wanted to fire the head coach and hire me. And uh, that, was, that didn't sit well with me because I went there because this head coach was just like a father to me. And I went there to help him out with his receivers that particular year. Because I did the same thing. I helped him also at North Carolina Central the same way when he was at North Carolina Central. Then I went to, when he got the job at Virginia Union, that's when I went there to help him out the same way, just during the football season. So when they let him go, they had me as the interim head coach. So they wanted me to, they wanted to hire me as the head coach, but that was really bothered me because I didn't feel like I wanted to do that because of who the guy was that they was they fired because he was just like my father and so I think when they when the season was over after we the season the season was over there then the AD came out on the field and said coach uh, let's try to get this done Monday try to get it done so we can have it out the way so I know what they was trying to do but what I did I kind of put it up put the money up a little bit high so I know they wasn't going to match it. So when they said they couldn't do it, I man, I packed my car and I got on the highway and then I heard they were looking for me so they can, they wanted to go and make the deal, but I was gone at that time mm-hmm. because I didn't have to worry about packing anything because I went there to help coach the coach as well was there, so I didn't have to worry about cleaning out an apartment, nothing like that because I was like one of the, uh, like, what they said, like a gypsy almost. Mm-hmm. I was moving. Okay. <laughs> All right, you were with the uh, the Saints up till '99, and then you had started at the University of Kentucky in 2001. What did you do between those two times? Well, uh, I when I left the Saints, we had a year on our contract, and so what I'd done then, I kind of volunteered at some high schools, kind of helped out in some high schools, and uh, just kind of you know kind of relaxed and kind of got myself recharged up again, ready to go again, and so I really didn't do a whole lot at that time. And so I just kind of, you know, kind of went around to some high schools, kind of helped the high schools out. My son was, matter of fact, he was going to one of the schools, so he was playing ball there, so I went to volunteer my service at the school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, you were with uh, Baylor until 2006. What did you do after that? Well, after I left 
the fundamentals and techniques of football. Now, uh, I know that you've been an active speaker uh, with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing with them and about the organization? Well, you know, what I was doing is going around just speaking to the young men uh, and, and groups and uh, just, you know, tell them about my relationship with God and with my religions and everything. But I was brought up in a family that was very religious. My dad was a deacon, and uh, when we was coming up, like I said, I had sisters and one brother and so when we was all at home we all had to go to Sunday school and uh, my dad a lot of time he like said when he was a deacon when we all left out of his house he might have been the last one because he locked the door because nobody left in here because we all had to go and so we was like the young kids that when all the other kids were out in the streets playing on Sundays on Sunday afternoons when we had to go to BTU Baptist Training Union we had to leave from what we was doing so we could make sure we was at Baptist Training Union and because that's where our parents brought us up. And uh, and so, you know, like that was a thing that when I went to school at Jackson State, you know, like I said, now, okay, now you're on your own. You don't have to worry about nobody making you do this and making you do that. But like I said, when I didn't go to church that Sunday or whatever, man, it seemed like the week was long. So I go to church every Sunday. I just got involved with the with you know, with the church and start doing things, and it was just a carryover and some, something that I enjoy doing. Now, outside of your work with the church and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, what are you doing now? Well, right now, you know, I was uh, been working with that UFL football. Mm -hmm. I got involved with the UFL football. Um, I was with Jerry Glanville at North. Let me say, uh, we was up at uh, <clears throat> up at uh, Connecticut. And we was at Connecticut there, and what they did, they shut that team down. We had, we only thing that we, only thing we done with that team, we, we had three trial camps. We had three trial camps. And then when we got ready to go to camp, we went to camp up in Connecticut. We was at camp, but we never hit the field because they had some work must come thing or whatever they had to pay and didn't pay them. And so what they done, they shut that team down and sent everybody back home. So when I we did that, and so the next year, Jerry Glanville got the, I mean, it's not, uh, uh, Turk Shona got the job in uh, Sacramento, California, Sacramento Mountain Lions in the UFL. So when he got that job there, he called me, and I went up there with him as the receiver coach in Sacramento last year. Okay. So we was there coaching that, you know, and so then after the season over, I got involved with Football University, uh, where they do camps with kids. They have the youth and high school kids. And so I've been doing that. So that starts like the end of March and it goes to almost to the end of uh, July. What they have we call Top Gun. Like I said, we do these camps. Every weekend they'll do camps. It can be all over the United States someplace in some city. So then uh, we would Top Gun a kid or how many kids we Top Gun in those particular camps during, during those months. Then they would have Top Gun. All those guys that was top, you know, Top Gun, they would come to the camps. And uh, like I said, this past year, it was in Dublin, Ohio. So what they do, they have the youth and high schools. So they had about 800 youth kids that was Top Gun came to the camp there. And you had 800 high school kids. Mm -hmm. So they had the first three days of high school kids, and the second three days they had the youth of the and they have about 800, you know, like I said, about 800 kids in each one of those camps. And so that's what I've been doing for the last uh, year, anyway, with, with the FBU.
gentlemen, when you're supposed to be playing Gremlin this week, so I know you know what happened right mm -hmm. that one. Yeah, so, I heard about that. <laughs> so I came down for that, and then, uh, but we enjoyed it anyway. You know, like said, uh, one lady said, we don't need no football game. We just enjoy each other. So mm -hmm. they had everything but the football game. Okay. So, which it was really, lot, it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Had fun. I thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed our interview with Harold Jackson, but we're not done. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we go into a brief history of scouting and the Combine. Unlike today, there were no formal scouts in professional football when the college draft was instituted in 1936. That's something that developed over time into the big business that it is today. One of the first instances of scouting in the NFL came when high school student Wellington Mara, who's the son of Giants owner Tim Mara at the time, gave an analysis to the team after watching Tuffy Lehmans in a college game. Lehmans was drafted by the Giants and is now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The younger Mara spent time reading magazines, reading in-town and out-of-town newspapers, and it started to put together rudimentary scattering reports on players throughout the country. Whether Wellington Mara was the first quote-unquote scout in NFL history can be debated. However, he was one of the first to notably write up reports on players to assist the team with the college draft. He was put in charge of the draft for the Giants in 1939. Eddie Kotal is considered to be the first player scout when he was hired to that position by the Los Angeles Rams in 1946. As we have mentioned previously, an argument can be made that Wellington Mara preceded Kotal by several years. He just didn't have the official title when he started with the New York Giants, as Mara was officially the treasurer and assistant to the owner, his father, Tim Mara, starting in 1937. I think that the difference is that Coda was the first to travel the country evaluating players. Mara mainly relied on newspaper and magazine information. Coda was a true road warrior when it came to scouting college players. The relationship that he built up with colleges gave him an edge over other teams. However, that does not diminish Kotal's accomplishments. He and Rams owner Dan Reeves are credited as being the first to do extensive evaluations of college players and to use telephones on draft day. However, the philosophy of drafting the best player available is where they probably have the biggest impact. This philosophy dictated that you take the best player regardless of whether it is a position of need for the team. You still improve your team and possibly at depth, but you're not drafting to specifically fill a hole on your roster. He was also credited with looking outside of football for athletes, specifically looking at track and basketball for talent. The Rams were also the first to sign African-American players as free agents. They signed Kenny Washington and Woody Strode in 1946. In 1949, they signed Paul Tank Younger, then Deacon Dan Towler in 1950. Kotal and the Rams signed Hall of Fame talent either through the draft or as free agents for an extended period of time. That alone should put him in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. However, as of the time of the recording of this episode, he has not earned a bronze bust. A few other names to be mentioned as trailblazers. Lloyd Wells, a scout with the Kansas City Chiefs in the early 1960s. Paul Patterson, who started with the Chicago Bears in 1967. And Hall of Famer Bill Nunn, who started with the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1968. Other early trailblazing scouts were Tank Younger with the Los Angeles Rams, Joe Perry with the San Francisco 49ers, Bobby Mitchell with Washington, Frank Gilliam with the Minnesota Vikings, Nate Borden with the Atlanta Falcons, Albert DeBenyon with the Buffalo Bills, and Roosevelt Gilliam with the Denver Broncos. 
To try and spread out the costs of scouting players, teams formed partnerships. In 1963, LESTO was formed when the Lions, Eagles, and Steelers grouped together. The formal acronym of LESTO is Lions, Eagles, and Steelers Talent Organization, or L-E-S-T-O. The Bears were added the following year, and the acronym became BLESTO. When the Minnesota Vikings were added a few years later, the organization changed its name to BLESTO V. The name changed to BLESTO V-I-I-I when the Buffalo Bills, Baltimore Colts, and Miami Dolphins were added in 1971. The name has since changed back to BLESTO, but the Philadelphia Eagles and Detroit Lions are no longer members. In 1964, the Central Eastern Personnel Organization, SEPO, was formed. It was a partnership between the Baltimore Colts, who went to Blesto in 1971, the Cleveland Browns, Green Bay Packers, and the St. Louis Cardinals. After the Atlanta Falcons, New York Giants, and Washington were added, the name changed to United Scouting. In 1983, the name changed to National Football Scouting Incorporated, or NFS. It is now referred to as the National. Also in 1964, Troika was formed when the Dallas Cowboys, Los Angeles Rams, and San Francisco 49ers got together. In 1967, the New Orleans Saints joined, and the name was changed to Quadra. That organization no longer exists, and all four franchises are now part of NFS, a.k.a. the National. The three scouting organizations did not share information with each other and were, in fact, in competition with each other. Recently, the National, formerly NFS, contained the Arizona Cardinals, Atlanta Falcons, Carolina Panthers, Cincinnati Bengals, Dallas Cowboys, Denver Broncos, Green Bay Packers, Houston Texans, Kansas City Chiefs, New Orleans Saints, New York Jets, Philadelphia Eagles, Los Angeles Chargers, Los Angeles Rams, San Francisco 49ers and Seattle Seahawks, as well as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tennessee Titans. Blesto contained the Buffalo Bills, Detroit Lions, Jacksonville Jaguars, Miami Dolphins, Minnesota Vikings, New York Giants, Pittsburgh Steelers, and Washington. There were six teams who did not belong to either organization, Baltimore Ravens, Chicago Bears, Cleveland Browns, Indianapolis Colts, Las Vegas Raiders, and the New England Patriots. They each have their own internal scouting departments that handle all personnel scouting. Memberships in these organizations continue to change over time, so this list is always going to change. Now let's get to the combine. Around 1976, the New York Jets began bringing in college prospects for interviews and medical exams. Other teams followed suit afterwards. In 1982, NFS held its first camp called the National Invitational Camp for college players looking to get drafted by the NFL at the urging of Dallas Cowboys president Tex Schramm. At that point, there were 16 teams affiliated with NFS. The camp was held in Tampa, Florida. 163 players were invited, and the camp was held in Tampa again the following year. Blesto and Quadra also held their own camps, and the competition between organizations continued. In 1984, the camp was held in New Orleans. Costs continued to increase as all three organizations were fighting to get the same information. Colleges became upset as prospects were missing classes so that they could attend all three camps. Something needed to be done. So in 1985, the event was held in Phoenix, Arizona, and all three scouting organizations participated in a single camp. NFS was chosen to run the camp, and the name changed to the National Scouting Combine. This is where the name Combine came from, a combination camp with all three organizations. 
1986, it returned to New Orleans and moved to Indianapolis in 1987 and has been there ever since, except for 2021, when the in-person combine was canceled due to COVID-19. Indianapolis was chosen because it was the home of NFS. In 2004, the combine started to get television coverage, and today it's a major television event. In 2011, regional combines were created for players not invited to the National Invitational Camp. These regional combines were held in multiple cities with the best players from the regional combines being invited to a super regional combine. In 2015, the veteran combine was created. This allows veteran free agents to work out for NFL teams in a combine-like environment. This was renamed the Pro Player Combine in 2016. One final note, the NFL does not run the combine. It's run by the National or NFS. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the Football Learning Academy, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. If you like what you've heard with this or any of our episodes, give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast platform. It helps us grow our podcast so that we can continue to bring you quality content. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for our show, email us at admin at football-learning-academy.com to talk about the various options available to you. We'd love to talk to you about adding you to our team. Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman aka the football history dude and i wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the sports history network our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear and if you didn't know it already we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics in fact here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network this is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.